Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was in a neurodiverse relationship for 32 years. We were married for 30, and we didn't find out we were a neurodiverse couple until our 29th year of marriage. And we have an amazing 25-year-old daughter who is thriving and doing great. And I am so excited today to bring you two guests who are in a neurodiverse relationship, I should say marriage, and uh, they are going to share a little bit about their story and what is making their relationship thrive and maybe even some of the challenges they've experienced. So Alex and Roy, thank you so much for being with me today on the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. Thank you for having us. We're so happy to be here. Yes, thank you. Awesome, awesome. So um, I always like to ask the couples who join us on the podcast, kind of what attracted you to each other and how long you've been together. So if, if each of you don't mind answering, kind of what attracted you to each other? I'll let Roy go first <laughs> on this one. Okay. Well, it was back in college where we met at a four five week band camp um at at uh, berkeley college of music where we were in the same piano class awesome. and immediately that's any like plus for mm -hmm. anybody if they play piano for me um, <laughs> because i've been a piano player my whole life so that was that was probably an, a good start and then after that it really once i got to know alex it really was more of learning about what she liked and who she was. It was the fact she worked with horses and I come from a horse farm life. So we had a lot in common um, and I, I really enjoyed that. Plus I thought she was pretty, so Aww. that also helps. Awesome, awesome, yeah. awesome. Thank you, Roy. And what about you, Alex? What attracted you to Roy? When I first met him back in 2008, I wasn't initially attracted to him, and I don't actually remember, to be honest. Mm -hmm. uh, he remembers more than I do. But when I was in college, I started sort of seeing him as a potential suitor and started fostering that relationship in the hopes that it would lead somewhere. And you, so when did you guys start dating? Thanks for sharing that, Alex. In 2013. So you all knew each other for five years before you started dating. Yes. That's correct. Yes. How wonderful. Yeah. How wonderful that you were able to build that friendship around so many common interests. I love that. So how long have you been, how long did you date? And then how long have you been married? I'll let Alex take this one because I don't want to get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we dated from 2013 to 2018. We got married in 2018 and we've been married since. Awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Fantastic. Well, you know, I was married for 30 years. We didn't find out we were a neurodiverse couple until our 29th year of marriage. And you all are starting off knowing about your neurodiversity a lot sooner than I certainly did. So I'm wondering, what do you both feel you need from each other to kind of thrive in your relationship as husband and wife? 
I need a high work ethic and um, communication as well as comfort. And that's what you need from Roy. In general, in any relationship I have, that's at the level that we are at, I would say. Yeah. I, I love that. So um, let me ask before Roy answers that question, um, what kind of communication, Alex, is most important to you? Because I know in my relationship, I wanted to talk all the time in my marriage. I wanted to talk all the time. I wanted to process everything. Um, I was very emotional, mm, not what my ex wanted. And I didn't find out why until we realized we were two different neurotypes. So do you mind kind of elaborating a little bit on what you mean by good communication? When it becomes an important topic, the ability to be a straight shooter and then mm -hmm. directly state and say um, things as they are, I think is very important. Mm -hmm. I love I think of, Yeah, and avoiding cognitive distortions and communication is really important. Um, it was hard for a while because I knew about all the cognitive distortions for over almost 15 years now, but Roy's just learning about them now. Wow. <laughs> That's a tough one. That is a tough one. So, so Roy, thank you so much, Alex, for that, because I think one of the biggest challenges for a lot of neurodiverse couples is understanding what their partner needs as far as, you know, clear and effective communication. So that was really helpful. What about you, Roy? Um, what do you need from Alex to be thriving and successful in your relationship? Hmm. Communication is uh, has always been at the at the foremost front of what I need, mm -hmm. um, but being that I am the more, uh, I hope this isn't offensive to people, but neurotypical. Hardly. Mm -hmm. um, it it's it's a little it's a little different. My my expectations of communication really shift based on how she is doing and what she's responding to mm -hmm. being somebody who struggles with this alex has a hard time sometimes communicating clearly um, she is more uh, reactive and can have um, reactions to things on a sensory level that might uh, make her communication break down a little bit and so it's it's getting good communication is is as best as I, I can. I'm sorry if our cat just meowed and walked That's in. That's okay. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's, it's hard to say because it really is, you know, uh, on a spectrum of how she's doing. Uh, it's if she's having a rough day or something like that, I don't expect a hundred percent clear communication. You know, sure. I'll, I'll take, I'll take what I can get. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, once things have kind of, once the storm has cleared in her head, I, I, you know, kind of go back in being like, okay, can I get some commu clear communication? Maybe some with some, some assertiveness. Nope. Okay. Or yes. And then we can go from there. So it, it's, it's, it, it almost it's, sounds like a process, like almost a back and forth process. And, and, and maybe I can ask a few questions and you can help both clarify this. 
Because I heard um, Alex say hardly when you said neurotypical. So Alex, do you mean, what did you mean by that? When I think he's been around me too much that he started to become autistic. Interesting. Okay. No, not necessarily, but partially. Yeah. Sometimes. I, I can totally relate to that. I really can because I think that I took on a lot of traits after being, you know, married for 30 years. Um, I took on a lot of my ex's traits. I think I did. And I've noticed kind of changing a lot of those as I've been um, alone or not with him for now six years. We haven't we haven't lived un under the same roof and we've been divorced from us for. So that's interesting because I think I think that happens with a lot of folks. I've heard that from a lot of folks. And so clearly both of you find the communication piece really important for you to both be able to thrive in a relationship. But I also heard you, Roy, say something about sensory issues. Mm -hmm. So can we talk a little bit about um, what you meant by that, that that determines maybe communication level or types of communication? Do you mind expanding a little on that? Sure. And, and this might be jumping ahead to another question. That's um, okay. But it, the, the sensory part is a huge aspect of Alex's experience of, of things. And it's something that being neurotypical, I don't make decisions based on sensory experiences. Mm. Um, and that's a that's a big thing, I think, that really affects Alex in a way and her communication and our relationship that I just don't even think about or consider because, you know, the, the texture of things, the feeling of things, really the only thing that I have a sense of reaction to is smell, but, <laughs> uh, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's something that will affect her ability to sometimes communicate clearly because some, it might be maybe the feeling of the pants she's wearing might be upsetting her and she's getting upset for a reason that I have no idea. Mm -hmm. um, she will, you know, it, it'll kind of, she'll turn inward, become really passive and not communicate clearly because she's getting upset. And it's like, did I do something? Did something happen? What's wrong? And she, sometimes she can't clearly articulate that it's something like that. You know, it, it may be, maybe it's getting too hot. Maybe mm -hmm. the sunlight is flickering in her eye in a way and it's just pissing her off. Mm -hmm. And, but she, she can't figure out what it is because it's upsetting her so much. Um, I've, I've seen, I've, you know, I've experienced that happen, but sometimes, you know, I'm typically able to be like, oh, I'm just getting, this is really irritating me. I need to stop this. And then, you know, I clearly communicate that. And so then the other person knows, oh, I'm not doing something wrong or something, uh, happened. And, you know, I, we can go on with, you know, being around each other or doing whatever we're doing. So anyway, um, you know, that the, the sensory part is, is definitely, uh, a huge factor in in how we have our back and forth if everything is great and alex isn't being bothered by sensory things or something like that then you know it's it's fine i'm not saying she always is but right. it's definitely uh a, a plays into our our relationship and things that happen you know um between us you know if she does get upset sometimes she gets too hot you know, right. and that irritates her even more because she's <laughs> right. now getting hot and it's just like it, it compiles on itself and it just builds up when it's you know 
it's she might not even be upset anymore about the thing that initially got her upset and it's a thing that got you know the you know, the next thing which was getting warm right she gets upset. so some some things things happen like that that you know i i have to be aware of and patient with to you know work through being like okay are, are you still upset about this or what, what what is it now okay it's that okay well you know thank you for telling me though know, because you know i well i can help you with that if it's like you know she got too hot and now she's thirsty here's a glass of water sure. or something so it's, it's i think it's that's things really, like that yeah i think that's really important roy and alex and i i'd like to delve a little bit more into this because I know one of the things that I did is I took everything personal because we didn't know we were a neurodiverse couple. And so, you know, I can imagine if you didn't know about your neurotypes and you didn't know you were a neurodiverse couple, you might take things personal, both of you, that weren't personal. So, um, Alex, as the autistic partner, do you have any thoughts or advice for the non-autistic partner when uh, their partner is getting upset about something and it's a sensory issue, is there a way that the neurotypical or non-autistic partner could check in to see if there's something they can help with? What would you recommend so that it doesn't turn into a fight, you know, and that we can be respectful of the sensory differences? Any thoughts? I think what's important to remember is that when you have someone who's in distress in that manner, it's more important to get their sensory needs met before you address any other issue. Um, or you wait until the person is calm before addressing anything. You're not going to be able to work out the problem if the person is sensory dysregulated. Mm -hmm. You have to wait until that's taken care of and then address whatever it is that was originally intended to be addressed. Yeah, I think that's really, really important. And um, when you are in that situation where you've got sensory overload, how do you communicate that to Alex that that's what go that's what's going on? Or is he just pick up on it? How does that work? Do you have... Um. Well, I'm the one who has sensory overload. Roy doesn't really get it. Um, right. no, so I guess the question is really for Roy. Only smells overload me. <laughs> yeah. So how do you know? I, I guess that's the thing, because I definitely didn't pick up on it, you know, with my ex. And I would imagine it can be really hard to know that you're in sensory overload. So Roy, is there something that, that you see or that you notice or um, something that you can share with our listeners that might be helpful? How do you um, deal with it? How, how, do you, how do you know what to do, I guess, is the question. I mean, it's, it's a lot of I've been around Alex for so long that I recognize her body language and her micro, what are they called, micro gestures? Okay. Things, okay. things that are very subtle. Um, you know, I'll, I'll know when she's getting either too hot and nauseous by the way she like rocks her head back and forth. Mm. Um, things like that where, you know, I've, I'm starting to learn her tells okay. on, on things uh, where, you know, for years before I didn't know what they were like, you know, kind of an onset of, um, and it, uh, 
it, it's helpful. Uh, sometimes, you know, I just I don't know, and mm -hmm. I I have to play the guessing game. Sure. Know, I kind of have to go down a list of sensory things. Like, are you, you know, are you too hot? Are you too cold? You know, does your skin, you know, feel okay? Um, you know, in the sense of like, is there a fabric touching it that's bothering you, that's irritating you? You, okay. know, do you, you know, is your nose stuffed up? Something, mm -hmm. something like that, that will change her perception of things that uh, will otherwise, you know, I, I can't see right you know, something's wrong so it's 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 been a lot of trial and error you know sure. to be honest sure, but sure, sure, sure. uh it's just a matter of of getting there is what's important and being patient with the person who you are talking to uh yeah. you know even you know we we had you know, a, she was <laughs> the cough. excuse me um that's okay you know, like, you know, we, like last night, she was too hungry to make a decision on what she wanted to eat. And mm. she got into a, like, I don't want to eat anything because I'm too hungry and I don't feel good. Uh, and so it was just a process of them being like going down a list of, okay, we have this, we can eat this, we could try this, they could make this. And it was, you know, it took probably a good 10, 15 minutes to finally come to a resolution of she could, you know, could eat these four things. And that's what we did. Um, so yeah, as I said, there's a lot, a lot of patience involved and you just sort of have to have the capacity to do it. Right. Um, and yeah, I, I think, I think that's so important for our listeners to hear. I think the critical piece that I got out of that is the patience and knowing that it's not personal for no. a personal attack oh, yeah. against the neurotypical partner or the non yes. partner. Yeah, she's she's not being difficult because she wants to be difficult to me. Right. Right. It's right. it's difficult for her to be able to make this decision because of things that are influencing her you know, ability to think clearly sometimes. And that's again, like you said, it's it's not a personal thing. It's just that's how she's experiencing things. Right, and right. It, it, can be, it can be very difficult, which... Yeah, you know, for both I'm, partners, for both partners. Yeah, yeah. oh, for both, definitely. Yeah, because yeah, neither one of you, I'm sure, wants to hurt the other. There's no intentional attempt to hurt. And so let's let's talk a little, Alex, about life before you were diagnosed as autistic, because um, you were diagnosed at what age? It was when I was 13, I believe, maybe that, a little bit before that. And that's a tough age anyway. You know, you're going through all kinds of changes hormonally and, you know, in life and whatever. So do you want to share with our audience a little bit about what life was like before you knew you were autistic? And then maybe a little bit about your journey from your preteen or teenage years to adulthood maybe what you've learned that would be helpful for somebody who's in a neurodiverse relationship? Life before my diagnosis, yeah. honestly, was horrible. Mm. I didn't really have a happy childhood. Once I got my diagnosis, I was sent off to um, residential treatment centers. And some of them were great, but some of them were horrid. And um, from there, 
it really made me passionate about reforming institutional care uh, and reforming how we treat people who are neurodiverse. And so even though like I did go through those horrible things, it did build up a lot of intrinsic motivation to help and try and make a difference. Um, once I got my diagnosis and graduated from my treatment center, I went to just regular boarding schools. Um, mm -hmm. I never lived at home again after that point. Um, and you were a teenager. So yes. You, you went to the treatment center when you were a teenager. When I was 13, yes. When you were 13. And I know, Alex, that had, I, I would imagine, that had to be so hard for you. Um, and I know I've watched your YouTube video called Undiagnosed Autism, Alex's Journey. And for those listeners um, who are interested in learning more about everything that Alex went through, I highly recommend that you check out that YouTube video. It's, it's heart-wrenching, Alex. Um, I'm so glad that you did it because I know you're not alone in what you went through before the diagnosis and then being in a treatment center. So what do you think has helped you become the thriving adult that you are now that you are in a, um, a marriage with a loving, supportive partner, what advice, what thoughts do you have for our audience that may be struggling or may have a child and they don't know what to do? They just were recently diagnosed and they're struggling to parent that child. What thoughts do you have that you want to share? I think one of the things I want to share is that there are resources and support out there. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's important for people to understand the dangers of misdiagnosis. When you would have a diagnosis that isn't a correct one, you get treated with things meant for the incorrect diagnosis that can have really dangerous health hazards on your body. Um, so I think it's important, like, for example, before I had my autism diagnosis, I was diagnosed with bipolar and given meds to treat bipolar, even though I didn't have it. Mm -hmm. And that affected my chemistry growing up. Um, and then I would imagine it would be the same for a kid who actually has bipolar, but has a misdiagnosis and is being treated for something else. Sure. Um, and I think one of the things I want people to understand is that once I was able to get on my own in a safe place, um, I had to rebuild myself and my personality in my life from square one. Mm -hmm. And it really helped kind of understanding what I wanted to be or the kind of person I wanted to be. And being given the skills to be able to end up independently pursue that. Wow. Where did you find, thank you for sharing that. Where did you find the resources to help you as you transitioned from being a teenager to an independent adult? Did the treatment center help you or were there uh, um I've been to a couple of different treatment centers. Not all of them helped me. Some of them gave me severe PTSD, mm -hmm. but other ones provided really great therapy that was able to help me. 
it's going to be different for everyone, but I would say therapy is a good place to start. There are different types of therapy that might work differently for different people. I would just recommend doing a lot of research on your conditions and what's around you. Um, and even something like going on the internet and doing research is a good start. Um, just really being proactive about seeking out these resources, um, I think is very important. So I guess, I, I mean, it's hard because I wish I could say, okay, there's this one type of therapy you should definitely right. do, but it's right. not right. as easy as that um, right. because everybody has such unique needs. Absolutely. And I know, I know this is part of the work that you want to do. You're getting a degree. Is it in psychology or? I actually already got the degree. That's awesome. And mm -hmm. what area do you, are you focusing on now or do you want to focus on in the future with that degree? So I got my master's in behavioral psychology. I'm personally interested in applying behavior analysis to terrorism and counterterrorism efforts. So it's kind of a different sort of field um, of behavior analysis, but that's sort of the direction I'm going. I'm still going to continue doing a lot of autism advocacy. I speak at conferences regularly and do a lot of media projects to help support um, causes such as neurodiversity, anti-institutionalism, mm -hmm. um, and also helping with child welfare, meaning, um, like foster care reform, adoption reform. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I will continually be doing both. I'm never going to stop working in autism advocacy because that is like my story. Yeah. My story is overcoming those odds. And I always seek out opportunities to help that um, and to help inspire others to live the best life they can through getting the right resources as much as I can. That's phenomenal. And, and the work that you're doing with your masters is desperately needed too. So that's wonderful that you've gone into that field in that area of expertise. I think there's so many things that you went through that will allow you to help others. And so I, I just excited to know that we got a chance to talk and that you're able to be on the podcast and share a little bit about your story. And hopefully people will watch the YouTube video and explore some of the ways in which they can help to educate the world about the resources needed and the way in which everybody can find the path to thrive. And it sounds like you are doing that every day. And I know we all have, you know, our challenges um, whether, no matter what our neurotype is. And I think that it would be really helpful if we could talk a little bit about what you each think has been most helpful for you to understand about each other's past, to be maybe um, patient or supportive when there are triggers, because I know you talked about your PTSD. What have you learned about each other that has helped you reduce the challenges, reduce the reactions or being reactionary to triggers and 
just how have you learned how to understand each other better to maybe avoid some problems and challenges that others might be having? I'll let Roy answer this first. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I, I have come to learn what and how she responds to things. Um, mainly, you know, if she gets upset, you know, how upset is she getting and is it becoming what, you know, I've become or what I've been starting to call a trauma response. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, is, is her brain reacting in a way that makes her so upset or scared that it triggers a PTSD survival instinct, you know, kind of trauma response that if it does, then it needs to be addressed in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, you, you have to go, you know, right to the core of just making sure the person knows they're safe Mm-hmm. Uh, making sure that their breathing is mm-hmm. in a way that helps bring back a, 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 you know, that, that center, that equilibrium of, um, there's a specific term for it, where the brain is no longer in fight or flight. Right. Where, where the, you know, where the, you know, <laughs> you really have to stop seeing the person as this person that, you know, you, you, I mean, you don't have to stop seeing them as you, you know, the person that you love and know, but you have to address the issue like somebody who is just on the edge of, you know, their, their brain can't process what's going on because they're so either scared or upset. Sure. And that, you know, that's really like any PTSD. You know, I've seen it, seen it happen in many cases where, Mm-hmm. You know, soldiers come back with PTSD and they react to loud sounds. An- animals have it, mm-hmm. um, but you you just have to address it in a way that you know, helps the the core problem. And then once you've brought them back, kind of from that place, uh, and you know, then you can kind of just you could start talking to them again. Um, and so that's that's what I've had to learn. And uh, you know, I, you know, it was really difficult at first um mm-hmm. because i hadn't seen it in a human being before mm. um yeah i'd seen it in animals many times mm-hmm. um, but seeing it in a human being especially the woman that i i love and want to spend the rest of my life with go through this it, it's it can be traumatizing to to see somebody go through this but of course um it it's it's something that i i've just had to kind of swallow my pride in a way in some cases and I just have to get her through this and then we can continue going on with what was happening before that triggered this. So um yeah it's 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 something that yeah I'm I'm fortunate we're both fortunate and I'm happy that I have the capacity for mm-hmm. uh, because it definitely you know a lot of people I, I couldn't imagine could do this. It's mm-hmm. not easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, seeing seeing the person that you love and care for go through, you know, a traumatic experience. Absolutely, uh, absolutely, and yeah. my heart goes out to you, Alex, and my heart goes out to you, Roy. Alex, 
to have to deal with those triggers and the trauma response, what I know, you know, what that can do to your body and your brain and everything. And um, Roy, for you to watch somebody who you love and you want to spend the rest of your life with, you know, suffer and struggle and to try to provide a safe place for their body and their brain to get um, out of the dysregulated phase is, is, is so critical. And I really, I want to address this even more because I know, um, Alex and Roy, that there are so many autistic individuals who are being diagnosed as adults and they have gone through trauma their entire lives and they're trying to parent their children. They're trying to be a good spouse and the triggers just are affecting every aspect of their lives, work, personal experiences with their family of origin, with their partner, with their kids. I, we haven't really addressed this on the podcast and I'd love to hear Alex um, share a little bit about, you know, again, any thoughts you have for our audience, because no one should have to not, no one should have to go through trauma, but we all know that so many of us have and didn't know it. And then to heal and to be on that healing path, maybe for the rest of your life and to have somebody in your life who understands that or other people in your life who understand that, what thoughts do you have for our autistic partners out there listening that might be helpful for them that has helped you? And what thoughts do you have maybe for the neurotypical partners as they're watching the triggers in their loved ones? Alex, do you want to share? Yeah. I think knowing the triggers uh, are very important. So if you're a person dealing with trauma, it's important to know your own triggers Mm -hmm. and if possible, explain them to your partner before you're in a state where it happens. That is so, so critical. I, I so believe that. How did you come to that understanding regarding your triggers? Was it through therapy? Was it through your own work? What was most helpful? Just time and processing it. I'll admit I didn't do a lot of therapy specifically for PTSD. Okay. Um, But I did a lot of research and reading on it and I learned a lot of tools. um, And, and what I want people to understand, like therapy works great for people and, um, but after you go into institutions and spend your the majority of your life in therapy, like my desire to want to go back to therapy is a was a lot less because sure. I've seen and have experienced a lot of like the horrible things that can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also experienced the good things. And I would say, you know, with therapy is something that you think is helpful, then definitely pursue that. Okay. Um, I read a lot of books. I gave my neurotypical partner books to read as well. And just educating myself on it 
was very important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you both for sharing that. I think it's really, really important. And I think that trauma may play a big part in a lot of neurodiverse couples challenges, but it's trauma that they are not fully aware of. So thank you so much for sharing that. I also know that there's a lot of social and emotional differences between different neurotypes. And when you've been bullied or you've had um, challenges and you didn't know why you had them when you were growing up, that may impact the way you react emotionally. I know we've talked a little bit about the emotional piece. I'd love to talk about the social differences that you both have. And it can be around socializing with others or socializing with each other. What do you think are the biggest differences and how have you both kind of worked through any challenges that you have in that area? I would say that like my need to have a group of friends is very important compared to Roy. Roy doesn't need to see his friends as often as I do, but he lives in a different social world than I do because he socializes through video games and through all those online platforms with his friends back home. I don't do any of that. I, um, I do. um, It's hard because I actually, I will say I do kind of isolate myself socially. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, I'm, it's almost a contradiction because I long for connection, but I also find a lot of comfort in being alone, but it's almost comfort that's escapism versus actually being a healthy person with a healthy social life. Um, mm. That's really interesting. Can we talk about that a little bit? Do you mind? Sure. Okay. Because... Um, I hear this a lot from autistic individuals that they want that connection with people who have similar interests, that they're not necessarily interested in small talk or being superficial. And yet they, they often say they have, they have a hard time finding, you know, the people that they can connect with on a regular basis and will understand them. So, um, what is it when you say you have a group of friends, are they online? Are they in real life? And do they have similar interests? What does that look like for you? Alex? No, I'm saying it would be ideal if I had a group of friends in person, but oh, I bullshit. don't currently. Yes. I have like friends, like close friends that live all over around the world because when you're at boarding school, everybody like comes from different places. And so mm-hmm. a lot of the people I became close with, my war buddies, I should say, are like all over. And then in here in Los Angeles, um, I try to cultivate as much friendships as possible. But to be honest, I haven't been very good at persistent at it. Or I've attracted people that I don't necessarily think have the same values that I would necessarily want in long-term friendships. And that's not to say there aren't a lot of great people. There are. um, And a lot of times, too, when um, Roy and I are having difficulties, I want to use my social time to improve that relationship rather than seek out with friends. But I am sort of working on 
trying to build and maintain high value friendships because it's not just about attracting the friends. It's also about being able to maintain it. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's hard because like I have an incredible amount of anxiety. Um, I try to act like I don't. And it, it's hard because no matter what I do, mm -hmm. like people notice that something's off about me and mm -hmm. Like I've tried for years to build the self-awareness to be able to change, but I I don't think I honestly can. And I, well, in all honesty, if I'm using a really strong voice, I shouldn't have to, you know, but. Exactly. Yes, you should. I, yeah. I live in a world though, where, you know, there's a right way to view things like, oh, you shouldn't have to worry about that. But we also live in a world that's still incredibly stigmatized towards people who are socially off, yes. whether we like to admit it or not, um, yes. but it's getting better. And yes. so my hope is that it keeps moving in that direction. I agree with you. I so agree with you. And, you know, I've said this before. Thank you so much, Alex, for that. I think that's going to be so helpful to so many of our listeners um, I've said this numerous times that if I had uh, known about autism and I had known about neurodiversity and I had had my daughter assessed that she probably would have been assessed as um, Asperger's at the time. And, you know, she was very socially awkward, very anxious. I had to teach her how to make a phone call. You know, it just, it was, it was so anxiety producing for her. And, you know, she found some of her tribe in band, you know, she kind of identif identified herself as a, you know, geeky band person. And then when she went to college, she found an amazing tribe of, you know, like-minded people in theater because everybody is unique and different in theater. And she, it, it took a while. I had to coach her about, you know, how to communicate with people that she didn't know. I would say, just ask them one question, like, you know, where are they from? Or do they have any siblings or whatever? And I think still it, it sometimes is challenging for her. And she has um, some anxiety around it. But because she hangs around people who totally accept her as she is, Alex, she's able to be more who she is. And she has a girlfriend who um, is totally accepting. They're both totally accepting of each other. And they've been together over two years and it's wonderful. But I hear you. I, I hear you. It's so hard when you want that connection and you want to be yourself and you haven't had an opportunity to find enough people who will accept you as you are. So thank you for being so vulnerable and honest about that. On that topic, too. Yeah. Um, so one thing I will say is that I did manage to find that type of community when I was in at boarding school, like at high school and college. However, I guess the hardest thing about it was being able to build that community. And then after four years, it's all gone mm -hmm. and everybody goes their separate ways. And yeah. I haven't been able to build as strong of a community since moving into adulthood, I would say. Yeah, I because if you think about it demographically, everybody's in the around the same age, in the same place, kind of doing relatively the same type of goals, mm -hmm. trying to major in something and graduate. Mm -hmm. And with that, it's a lot easier to have because you have an active population of folks to choose from. Right. Um, I think it becomes more difficult. 
as you become an adult, trying to build that for yourself outside of something like that. I agree. I agree. I absolutely agree. And I think, you know, I, I was involved before COVID with a lot of meetup groups. And I think that's a place where a lot of folks have found people who are interested in similar uh, special interests or, you know, have a similar mindset. So I don't know how many autistic folks out there have ever been involved in meetup groups, but I think, you know, there are some ways in which people can connect in person now because things are, are slowing down with the pandemic, but it's tough. You're absolutely right, Alex. It's tough when you're in college or you're in school, you've kind of got a built-in group of people that you can connect with. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, Roy, is there anything else that you want to add about the social piece, the differences that you have? I and mean, it's it, okay. it, it okay goes on. Go I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things where like being less anxious, a little more neurotypical, I, I find things a little bit easier and quicker for me to engage mm -hmm. in the wild sort of situations mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. I, you know, I have to kind of, I have to make sure you know, Alex is okay with how things are going, mm -hmm. you know, checking, checking in mm -hmm. if we're at an engagement or we're doing something, you know, just checking in, you know, one-to-one, -one, how, you know, how are things going? Cause you know, like, like earlier I was saying how something's bothering her or she's becoming uncomfortable. She'll, she'll be very passive. She mm -hmm. won't say anything. She'll turn inward. And, you know, it's, it's really up to me to kind of, you know, poke in there and just be like, Hey, you know, how's it going in there? Mm -hmm, <laughs> everything, mm -hmm. everything going okay. And if they are, then we continue. If they're not, then, you know, it's like, okay, do we need to leave? What do you need? Do you need something? Do you need to like kind of go to a quiet room? If, you know, we're at a social engagement or something like that, where it's like, you know, it just, just to make sure that things are, are going smoothly in her head. I love well that. I love that. I love that the two of you are, it's probably always a work in progress, working yeah. to oh, understand yeah. each other's needs, whether it's, you know, socially or emotionally or whatever, and really coming from a place of patience and understanding and compassion and love. I, I, I think that's wonderful. Because again, we've all been through different things in our lives. And you know, we all have our baggage, for lack of a better word, our issues that we're going to be working through maybe for the rest of our lives. So thank you so much for, for sharing how you all are navigating this. I think another area that can sometimes be challenging is the way in which two different neurotypes might process things. And I've heard a lot about the black and white thinking, which went on a lot in my marriage. Um, I couldn't understand it sometimes because I saw so much in color, too much. It was probably overload when I shared it. So maybe we can touch a little bit on how the two of you process issues, make decisions, and what are maybe some of the differences that you've worked through or understanding you've gained over time? Thoughts? That's a that's a big question. It is. That's a good question. I mean, like you said, it's 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 a work in progress. Okay. Um, well, basically, what I do is if something's irritating me. I just say it. 
Yeah, pretty bluntly. Yeah, I just if like Roy's annoying me, I'll say it right then and there what exactly it is. And it's not just me too. She yeah. sees something in the world. Someone might be doing something. She's, uh, it's um, pretty blunt. But Alex, at the same time, though, I also pick and choose my battles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because if I, yeah. So. I, I think that that's really important for those who are in neurodiverse relationships to understand that when you're blunt, that doesn't mean you're being mean, right? Yes. And I try very hard not to ever ridicule in front of another person. Mm. So that's also really important. Like, even though like, yes, I can be blunt. I don't do it to him, like in front of his friends or anything like that. Like I'll pull him aside or something if it's pressing, I guess. Yeah. That's very respectful. And I think that's important for our listeners to hear because I know that many a time I probably brought up things in front of other people I can laugh about it now but I'm sure my ex did not appreciate it you know when he was doing something that was a little off um yeah so thank you thank you for that what about like decision making you know processing decisions or you know life changes like um I like to think I have the only and first say on everything (laughs) okay and how does that work how does that work Alex is that usually the way it works Roy, Alex? No, it isn't, but I okay. wish it did. Uh, she, she, it, it depends on what it is. I was, I was, I wanted to mention how over time and, you know, we have begun to, well, we are, you know, in the point where certain decisions kind of fall on the person. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's a financial decision or if it's a food decision, you know, I, Often, you know, for example, like a food decision, I'm really not a picky eater, Mm -hmm. um, but I know certain foods really upset Alex. And so when it comes to things like that, I'm like, I, what do you want? Like, I'll eat whatever, (laughs) you know, Uh what, 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 what what do you want to eat? Because that's the kind of decision that's, it's, it will be more productive if she gets to choose, Mm -hmm. because I know that most likely I will eat everything that she chooses. Um, and then there's certain things that, you know, she would, she's like, I, I, you know, I would default to you for this sort of decision. Um, you know, if it's you know a, a financial decision or something, she often likes to you know, make sure that I get, you know, a, an eye on it. And then, you know, we, you know, we can do yes or no, we're going to get this or we're not going to get this. Um, so we've really actually kind of categorized how our decisions and uh, get made based on really what they are. Yeah, that's really great. Kind of respecting when a decision is being made that one of you is more, and I'm going to use this word, picky um, yeah. or impacted by certain things around the decision why not just let that person have what they need so it doesn't turn into an argument or a fight or resentment, you know? Um, am I hearing that correctly? I, I, I would agree. Def, definitely on, on the resentment. And okay. like, it, it's, it's both ways too, because if I make a decision that then she ends up not liking, I'll feel bad 
because sure. it's you know I, I I don't want to make decisions that make her upset or hurt her. Sure. Uh, so it's it's you know I've and again, but it was a learning process. Sure. You know, for I had to learn. Okay, there. You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna die alone on this hill. I'm not gonna right. fight this. <laughs> this isn't worth it. Right. Um, so it's it's as I said, you know, it's a process. Sure. Um, that you know we're still learning, but sure. Uh, you know, there's certain things that we've now established that kind of go without question. Yeah, uh, I love that. I also love, I, you know, I, I don't know if this was the case, but the fact that you were friends for five years before you started dating, did that really help build a foundation that made your relationship, your romantic relationship stronger? Do you think? I think things got serious a lot more quickly because we already had that friendship yeah, in place. We were living together almost right away. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we haven't really been apart. Yeah, that's all. Awesome. But it never felt odd. Yeah. It was like, yeah, it was just, just sort of happened and worked. I never imagined that I would be like this either. Wow. Uh, said it felt just natural. It's just. Wow. That's, that's, that's awesome. That's really awesome. Well, we've talked about so many things and I would love for you all to share what you think are the greatest strengths in your relationship. We didn't talk about emotional or physical intimacy. And I know that's an issue that a lot of neurodiverse couples have challenges with. Um, we did talk about sensory issues and we didn't really talk about employment. So I'm wondering what you think your, your greatest strengths are. And if you can, if you're willing to talk a little bit about the physical um, and emotional intimacy piece or the employment piece, I think that would be helpful to our listeners. Right. Can we narrow down that question a little bit more specifically? It's kind of hard for me to answer such a yeah, general question, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm going to hone in on what do you think your greatest strengths are in the areas of um, emotional and physical intimacy? I would say my ability to just say what's on my mind and what I want. Mm -hmm. And mm. to be able to articulate it. Great. But so being very honest with Alex about what you want and need. Indeed. Love what it. would you say, Roy, is yours? Hmm. I'm, I'm thinking. Okay. I don't want to get this wrong. There is no wrong answer. Well, with myself. Um... What was the question again? What do you think are the greatest strengths regarding emotional and physical intimacy in your relationship? And Alex talked about just being honest and say what she needs and wants. I think trust mm. that is built upon the time we've known each other. I think that if we didn't then a lot of things would be brought into question, mm -hmm. which could build resentment and 
be fear-based because you would think that person is hiding or purposefully not committing to a level that you know is, is met mm -hmm. that if, yeah, yeah i think i think that's one of the, the biggest things is that i know that i can trust her mm -hmm. i think that's um, so that, important that's so that important. my yeah that my emotions and that what i need and want you know, are safe with her mm -hmm. um, so it's yeah it's yeah that's i would say that's a pretty important one it's critical it's critical thank you both i i would love I, I would love for you to end on whatever note you want to end on and um is there anything else we've talked about so many important issues some of which we've never touched on in the podcast is there anything else that you've learned in your relationship with each other that you think it would be helpful for couples listening to hear, whether they're just starting their relationship or they've been in it for 20 years. Any advice, I, any thoughts? Yes, go ahead, Alex. I think if you want it to continue, you have to keep choosing each other. Mm, I love that. Because we're not the same people we were like 10 years ago. Um, and continuously choosing each other. Yeah, that's great. What about you, Roy? Well, coming from the neurotypical side, uh, I would recommend that if there are difficult times and frustrating moments that, you, like I said, you swallow some of your pride in a situation that may otherwise feel like you might be a part of like a victim of sorts, like in a disagreement or an argument. And that if the person that you are with is going through either some sort of symptom of autism or PTSD, that you address that first. Mm -hmm. it's, it's something that I think a lot of people I see out there, they, have a hard time with because their feelings are important to them because it's happening to them and mm -hmm. they're unable to see past that. Mm -hmm. So kind of removing your emotions from a situation and, you know, helping the scared or hurt person through it and then coming back to the situation when things are safe, it, that that is something that I would recommend and that people have you know, to try or to, you know, try to incorporate or, you know, it's, it's not easy though. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I will have to say that because it's hard not to get caught up in your own feelings in a situation that yeah. is emotionally charged. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, it's a pretty general thing, but, you know, with dealing with somebody that struggles with autism in the way they react to things, it can really help mm -hmm. if you're able to, to do this yeah. and to recognize it. 
to recognize it in yourself being like, okay, I'm getting mad at a situation that is, you know, well, my emotions, you know, are they useful? Right. It's, it's hard to, we're human beings. We are emotionally charged animals. Right. That, you know, it's. I yeah. think, I think both of what you both said is so critical and I think Alex to keep choosing each other is number one because there's going to be lots of ups and downs and Roy to not take things personally and to be able to see the difference between the person you love and their sensory issues or PTSD or triggers or trauma or whatever, I think is so critical to separate those things. I know we did an episode on the four agreements and one of the four agreements, the book by Don Miguel Ruiz, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it is uh, don't take things personal. And I think if every neurodiverse couple could really practice that it would save so much pain, unintentional hurt, unintentional trauma, misunderstandings. I know it would have been my marriage. And every time I say that, I get, you know, hands up from other people. But this has been such a wonderful and enlightening conversation with the two of you. And I feel really honored to have had this opportunity to get to know you both a little better and to chat with you. And I know, Alex, you're doing amazing work in the world and you have um, a website and you're also active on Instagram. So if folks want to reach out to you or want to learn a little bit more about you besides your YouTube video, what's the best way for them to reach you? They can go through my website or go through my Instagram or Facebook, um, which is at Generous Alex. And Alex is spelled with an I. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much. And Roy, what about you? If people want to reach out to you, because we, we've we had on the podcast, we've had couples where the man is autistic, and then we've had couples where the woman is autistic. And, you know, sometimes they want to reach out. Is there any way that folks can reach out to you? I, I would recommend reaching out to Alex okay. uh, through for this. He doesn't have I, social media. So if anyone wants to reach him, I can put them in touch with him. Wonderful. Yes. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you both for spending this time with me. I can't thank you enough. It has really, really been my pleasure and my honor to talk to you. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, 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 oh,